Good evening, everyone. Shall we pray to start with? Seems like a good place to start. Lord, thank you that we're here tonight. I know you want to meet with each and every one of us individually. And I pray that something I say tonight will resonate with each person here to draw closer to you. Amen. Amen. Okay, picture this. It's the summer of 2019. Sarah, who prayed, and I have just got married. COVID isn't a thing yet. England are one-day international champions. And Sarah and I had just moved to Winchester. So to help us move, Sarah's mum and her sister travelled up from Somerset, where we're both from originally, uh, and they bought a few kind of bits and bobs that we couldn't fit in our car, like a chair, my wedding suit, just random things. But in that, they also bought some presents that we didn't get a chance to unwrap or anything like that. So in there was this kind of cheese board that a lovely older couple got for us. There was also some kind of gift vouchers. But there was one present that was wrapped. Everything else was unwrapped, but there was one present that was wrapped. And it was this kind of big box, about that big. And Sarah and I looked at it and we thought, what on earth could this be? Sarah's mum said to her, we'll call her Jane, because that's her name. But anyway, <laughs> she's watching, so call out to her, shout out. Um, but anyway, sorry. So. Uh, she said to us, this has come from a lady who is renowned for giving slightly strange presents at weddings. So we thought, well, let's brace ourselves. We have no idea what this could possibly be. So we unwrapped it and outspilled the box for an orb lamp. One of those things that you kind of put your hand on it, makes your hair stand on end, you get an electric shock. And we thought that is an odd present to give people on their wedding day. So anyway, we kind of just left it and thought, well, what, what should we do with this? So we decided, let's give it to our nephew. He was like six or seven at the time, and he'd been our ring bearer. So we just wanted to say, you know, here's a present. Thanks for being awesome. Thanks for all your help. So we took it down to Woking, where they lived, and we, we re-wrapped it. We gave it to him, and he unwrapped it with his mum. And, and I can't stress this enough. When you get a present, do actually open the box. Because he opened the box and out spilled this ornate vase. <laughs> so, the kicker of the whole story, though, is that Sarah had already written our thank you cards. And she'd written to this lady, thank you so much for the orb lamp. <laughs> Which was brilliant. So, this is, of course, a story of our misgivings regarding a present. However, I think it really speaks to the heart of some of what I will speak about tonight which is that our expectations can get in the way. So our passage that Lynn read so beautifully, uh, John 20, 11 to 18, has three chords or three strands that I felt that God wanted me to draw out this evening. So if you love to take notes, I would jot these three down to help as we go along. So our three strands are one, our expectation, two, our belonging, and three, our application. So first, our expectation. In verse 14, we read that Mary turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. You see, Mary had an expectation of what Jesus should look like, presumably a dead body, maybe wrapped in cloth, maybe with nail-pierced hands and a spear-pierced side. But most certainly, 
not a man who was clearly alive and looking as though he tended the garden. As I was preparing for this talk, I realized that I so easily fall into this trap. You see, I go into a worship meeting or a Sunday service like this one or my own private time with Jesus, and I know exactly how Jesus should look to me, how he should feel to me, how long I will be with him, an hour on a Sunday, a 15-minute morning prayer ritual. And you know, what's even crazier is that if I don't see, feel, or hear Jesus in the way I expect to, I more often than not, in my insecure and rotten heart, think, oh Jesus, you didn't want to meet with me today. That is so, so wrong. That could not be further from the truth that we read in the Bible and that we know from countless stories of Jesus meeting people in the most surprising manners. What I want you to recognize from this verse is that we must expect Jesus to show up because he always does. We just have to recalibrate our expectation to be one that allows Jesus to dictate how he shows up. Yes, there might be times when Jesus shows up in the ways that I think he will. Maybe a feeling that I felt before or a soft voice whispered into my heart. But more likely, he will show up in a way that you don't expect. Maybe through the words of a friend, maybe through a worship song that you've always hated and usually switch off from. But sisters and brothers, we have to adopt a posture of free and willing expectation. Because if we begin to limit how we let Jesus meet us, then we will run the risk of missing something really important. So let us recalibrate our expectation of Jesus to one that allows for him to show up how he wants to, not how we want him to. I read a story of a lady named Joanna Flanners Thomas. She grew up in apartheid South Africa and wanted desperately to help end apartheid and the violence in her home country. So after college, she began praying the Lord's Prayer every day. And every day she would dwell on the line, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. As she was reading this, she realized she was just a few minutes away from South Africa's most violent maximum security prison, Polesmore Prison. It had a brutal history with 279 acts of violence committed in one year. But disregarding her safety, she went and preached them a simple message of forgiveness and reconciliation. Within a year of Joanna being in this prison, the crime rate dropped from the staggering 279 to just two per year. So shocking were the results that the BBC sent a team out to create a documentary on it. And when asked what brought about the change, very simply Joanna asked, God was already present in Polesmore. I just had to make him visible. And what I love about this story is that the men Joanna met with probably had no intention of meeting Jesus. Yet Joanna went in and spoke gently of him, and the men met him. Most likely because they had no preconceived expectation of what Jesus should look like. Therefore, they met him in the way he wanted to meet them in somewhere completely unexpected. Joanna's story leads me to a smaller side I want to make here about something incredibly fundamental about Jesus. The first person the risen Jesus Christ shows himself to is Mary, a woman. 
In the context, Mary's testimony wouldn't have even been counted in court because she was a woman. And yet Jesus, in his powerfully subversive way, shows himself to Mary and, as we will find out, tells her to tell his male disciples about this miracle. This makes literally no sense in the context of the time. Yet Jesus promotes the lowly, those that culture rejects. So I just want to say that I love being part of a church that celebrates women because I believe that was a fundamental characteristic of Jesus' life and ministry. Anyway, I get sidetracked. Finally, of course, Mary does recognize Jesus, and it comes in verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned to him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni. Jesus doesn't leave Mary without first showing himself to her, and he won't leave without finally showing himself to you. There might be some people here who think, Jesus doesn't know me. He doesn't know my name. He doesn't know my story. But let me tell you, he does. He knows your name. We know Mary recognized Jesus because Rabbi means my dear teacher. It wasn't just rabbi. It was this personal recognition of Jesus as both her teacher and her Lord. A way to think about recalibrating our expectation is like learning a language. If we only meet with Jesus when we want, when he finally speaks our name, that's like doing Duolingo once a day. Sure, you might learn some of the phrases and you might be able to get by in the country, but to truly learn the language and become bilingual, you have to immerse yourself in the language, read in it, write in it, let it show up in our lives without forcing it to. And that is exactly the same with our expectation of Jesus. He is always there, always present, and all we have to do is allow him to show up how he wants to. So, we now have an understanding for how our expectation of Jesus could be as broad yet certain. Now we can focus on the second thread, our belonging. I think we all wrestle with our belonging from time to time, some more than others, but it's a question we all ask ourselves. Where do I fit in? Who appreciates me? Would anyone know if I wasn't at this event? And belonging is so innately wrapped up in health that a study conducted by MIT found that the area of the brain that craves belonging is the same part that craves food, and that when we experience social exclusion, we experience this in the same area of our brain that we experience physical pain. Therefore, when we read verse 17 and Jesus saying, go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God, you might begin to worry that you don't fit in, even to this Christian community that you thought wouldn't reject you. That is certainly the historical interpretation. But no. And if you allow me uh, to just nerd out a little bit, I'll explain why that's just a categorically wrong interpretation of this verse. The reason we know this is a message open to you and me today, even though we're not Israelites, even though we might not feel like the type of people who Christ normally calls, is because Jesus knew his Old Testament. And what that means is Jesus was familiar with a little book in the Old Testament called Ruth, in which a daughter called Ruth, not an Israelite, not part of the people of God, tells Naomi that she will go with her into Israel and says this famous phrase, 
Your people shall be my people, your God, my God. And in doing so, Ruth, an outsider, is aligning herself with Naomi and redefining her belonging to be that of with Naomi rather than against. This is what Jesus is channeling in what he says. Therefore, not only is this not the resurrected Jesus putting a division between himself and the rest of humanity, nay, it is in fact Jesus identifying with the disciples and identifying their belonging with him as God being their father. And again, I think, it's a point, I think it's poignant that the story that Jesus alludes to of the realignment of belonging centers around the story of a woman. The message Mary is tasked with telling is the most important message anyone ever has or ever will be given. And by giving it to Mary, I think part of what Jesus is doing is redrawing a circle, a circle that counts more people into the message of his resurrection that we celebrate at Easter. Further, he tells Mary to go to my brothers, again realigning himself, the risen Jesus, with the disciples. Therefore, if we understand categorically that the Johannine Jesus is aligning himself with the disciples, well, why does all of that matter? Because we are disciples of Jesus. Therefore, it matters a great deal to us It renders our lives forever changed because we now know we belong to the community of believers where the subjugated are promoted and the lowest are given the most important roles. And even more incredibly, this belonging can't be stripped by an earthly person. And not only could it not be stripped from us, we are allowed to call God our Father and in the same declaration unite ourselves with the risen Jesus the sanctifier of our sins. That is why it's so important. So we now have our expectation and our belonging from these verses. We come to our application. I use the word application because it's proactive. And I believe that a Christian life is one that must be proactively seeking to usher in the kingdom of God. Therefore, it's so helpful when the Bible actually tells us how we can start to do this. And the action is found in verse 18. Mary went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. Mary, having met the risen Jesus, didn't just stay there rejoicing, no. She left. She went and she spread the news to the people. And I believe that this is the vital action that all Christians must take. We can't simply bottle up this good news and keep it for ourselves. We have to go and we have to tell people about it because it's too good not to. And I think there is at times within the church widely a permission given to not share the good news because it feels uncomfortable or because in the past the church has hurt groups of people and therefore we don't have to share it. And I'm going to be honest with you, I don't always find it easy to share the good news. And I worked for this church for a year as an evangelist. So believe me, I am preaching as much to my own heart as anyone else. But the inescapable truth is that we cannot give in to the temptation to not share the gospel. The second thread I want to draw out, and I think it really helps us with the call to share the good news, is the exclamation mark hidden in the middle of verse 18. I have seen the Lord 
exclamation mark. I have seen the Lord, exclamation mark. What this tells me is that Mary was so exuberant in the way that she shared this, this overflow of joy, that modern translators found the exclamation mark to be the best tool in English punctuation for this tone and this moment. They could have just left it as, I have seen the Lord, no exclamation mark. And in many ways, the story would be exactly the same. We still have our calling, we still have our belonging, and we still have our risen Savior. But in placing the exclamation mark, the translators showed the unequivocal joy of Mary. This joy that can only come from one source and once felt is impossible to replicate. I think that at times it's so easy to forget those moments where Jesus says our name, the moments when we feel his touch on our lives, and then it becomes really difficult for us to share the good news because we've forgotten what, it, what makes it so good in the first place. But what makes the good news so good is that Jesus knows each and every one of us. His declaration, my father and your father, is a collective expression, but it's also uniquely individual to each person who accepts Jesus. And that, to me, is so beautiful. That's what makes the Christian faith so exciting and different to me. We have a savior who died for all of our sins as a collective, but he also died for my sins. He died for Jackson's, he died for Louise's sins on an individual basis. That is what makes the news good. C.S. Lewis wrote, when Christ died, he died for you individually just as much as if you'd been the only person in the world. That is astonishing. In the complexity of the fallen world and the redeeming of mankind, Jesus would have done it all the same, even if, it, even if you or I were the only people on the planet. And so when we remember the joy of the good news, I don't just mean the feeling of joy, but the security of having a God who knows us and loves us individually, we can't help but share the good news with everyone we meet. Have you ever spoken to someone who has just found faith? If you haven't, honestly, you really should. There is no other interaction like it. You see this person who is just overflowing and, and bubbling with this unexpressible joy. And that's what Mary had. And that's what I pray that each and every one of us will re-experience tonight and, and over the week. On this Sunday, about 2,000 years and a week after the greatest Sunday ever, we can experience the love that calls us by our name, that we recognize, and that we can't help but shout about. I just have one more story to share tonight before I close. And it's about a man called W.E. Sangster. He was a distinguished preacher of a former generation. Well, one day, he, he woke up and he felt an uneasiness in his throat. So he went to a doctor to have it checked out, and the doctor told him he had an incurable disease of progressive atrophy. And the doctor went on to say that his voice would eventually fail and he would be unable to swallow. Still, Sangster continued his ministry by writing. After a while, his voice did disappear entirely. But it was Easter morning, a few weeks before Sangster would pass away, and he wrote this to his daughter. 
It is terrible to wake up on Easter and have no voice of which to shout, He is risen. But it would still be more terrible to have a voice and not want to shout about it. How terrible it would be to have a voice and not want to shout it. We all should want to exclaim it. It's the best, most important news anyone will ever hear. So exclaim it with at least the one exclamation mark that Mary used. So let me leave you with this. Recalibrate your expectation to know that Jesus is present, but allow him to determine how he shows up. Rest assured in the belonging of a Jesus who died for you just as much as if you were the only person on earth. Allow the Father's voice calling your name to start the overflow of joy that you can't help but share with the people around you because how terrible it would be to have a voice and not want to shout it, exclamation point and all. Amen.